This morning, I hope we are not here just for the sake of doing church or being at church, but rather we are here to do something more, to be something more. And and as we gather, I hope we are gathered to be a community that is learning to live and love like Jesus. In fact, I hope that we are also here. Mm -hmm. You have it plugged in? There we go. We are here to worship. We are here to practice this value this morning by continually focusing on and surrendering to God's character in a way which transforms our individual and our relationship lives. We are here to be in community. And as an extended family of Jesus followers, we value celebrating together. We encourage each other and invest in the lives of others. And we are here to be sent on mission. As we value discovering what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit, we demonstrate the goodness of God's love and peace and healing to our neighbors. Those values are hopefully why you are here at church this morning. This morning we begin our new series shipwrecked. And it's, and it's going to follow Paul's journey as a sentenced prisoner in chains. But more importantly, like Matt sang about in his song during the offering, is it is to remember that in those dark moments, what the light is. Our series Shipwreck will follow Paul's seafaring journey as a sentenced prisoner in chains. I believe Paul's journey will teach us to faithfully depend on God and stay the mission even in the moments where we find ourselves bound by what seemingly are overwhelming circumstances. And through this five-week series, uh, through Acts 27 as well as Acts 28, I hope that we can learn to mirror Paul's dependence on God and stay the course despite what circumstances we seemingly seem like sentenced to prisoners ourselves. It's amazing that sometimes things happen in our lives and they can overwhelm our lives and they become bound to our lives and sometimes even bound to our identity and in essence we feel like we are prisoners to life. We feel like we've become prisoners to these things that we are bound by. This morning we are going to be picking up Paul's journey as he's bound for the open sea. Now, Carol Godshaw and uh, Kendra uh, Ginrich did an amazing job at uh, displaying our our new series. And I'm excited about this. I hope you take a minute to come up and see some of the work they've done here. But this morning we are going to be picking up Paul's journey as a bound and sentenced prisoner that is being sent into the open sea. And we're going to be looking at Acts 27, 1 through 12, through this message in which we've entitled, Bound. And before we read Acts 27, 1 through 12, I want to touch base with just some background story to what is happening so far in the life of Paul up to this moment. We pick up this story this morning, and we're going to see that Paul is being led like a dog on a leash, and his hands are bound, and his feet are bound, and he has lost his freedom. But I want to tell you how Paul got to that point. However, just a few chapters ago, Paul was a free man. He had his freedom. 
He had been passionately traversing the cities and the countries and the mountainsides. And he had been looking to become this huge force for the kingdom. And he became the single-handedly guy responsible for winning Gentiles to Christ and discipling them and planting churches. He had just come back from traversing on some evangelistic, powerful missions. But even though Paul's an insider and an ethnic Jew... And there's no other insider ethnic Jew as legit as Paul was. In the past few weeks, this story is going to show us that the story began to change. The narrative changed. Paul finds himself turned on by his own people because he had single-handedly defended the good news to those outside of the Jewish system. Paul arrives into Jerusalem. He begins to to come off this journey in which he has just planted several churches. He comes off this journey where he's just launched several disciples. And he's got that energy. You know, that energy when you come back from a conference or, or something that's really meaningful for you. And you're just kind of still hyped up from it. Paul is coming into Jerusalem, into the holy city, with this kind of energy from launching churches. From disciple making. And from his cross country adventures. Listen how to the message explains Paul's return as he enters into Jerusalem. It describes this awesome homecoming which is fueled by great stories of God. In Jerusalem, our friends, glad to see us, received us with open arms. The first thing, the next morning, we took Paul to see James. And all the church leaders were there. They were gathered around. All the church leaders were there, and after a time of greeting and small talk in the lobby, Paul took them into the sanctuary, and he began to tell them the story of which he had just lived. Detail by detail, he went through what God had done through the non-Jewish people through his ministry. Church leaders were listening. They had great delights, and it says, they gave God the glory. Now the NIV continues in Acts 24, 27 to 28, to tell us that how the rest of Paul's homecoming looked. And it, it didn't look so awesome. In fact, what happened is that as Paul is in the temple sharing with people what is happening, we see that the town is having a whole different type of homecoming for Paul. Some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and they seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he's brought Greeks, he's brought the outsider into the temple. And in doing so, because he brought people from the neighborhood into the temple, he has defiled our holy place. At this point, the whole town is up in arms. The whole town, the NIV says, begins to run to get involved. The legalistic Zionist neighbors are looking for a fight, and individuals begin to run from every which direction just to get their licks in on Paul. They seize him as he's in the temple, and they literally grab him by his shoulders and his hair, and they drag him out of the temple because he is defiling their holy place in their mindset. And, and it's not bad enough that they just drag him out of the temple. They also shut the doors and lock them because they want to make sure that he and his people can't get back inside. It's a very welcoming, seeker-sensitive church. 
The crowd is beginning to give him most likely the biggest beatdown they've ever done. And literally it says in the text it was their hope and their intent to kill Paul. But as this fight ensues, luckily God intervenes through an outsider. And there's a Roman guard that is stationed not far along. And he begins to see this riot that is taking place around this finicky little Jew. And so he's confused what's going on. And Rome, Rome is uh, uh, the policing oppressive force over Jerusalem. And every once in a while they like to stretch their muscle and their might and just remind that the Jewish people that, hey, we are not in charge of your matters. We are in charge. And so the soldier struts over and he begins uh, to grab Paul and he takes him out of this, this riot and he immediately bounds Paul. At his hands and at his feet. Paul's going to spend the next three chapters like that. He takes his freedom by shackling him to tremendously heavy chains. He instantly shackled his feet and he's now under the ownership of the empire. The guard begins to do an investigation of what's going on. Why is there a riot? Why, why are you guys pulling a Jew out of the temple and beating him up? Paul begins to tell his side of the story. The Roman guard does not understand what Paul has done to warrant such a reaction from the crowd. And at this point, most of us would be crying mercy, yes? Most of us would be saying, uncle, the whole town has turned against us. We're not allowed in our holy place, and we've lost our freedom as it's been shackled, and we are now led around by a guard, kind of like a dog on a leash. Most of us are going to be pretty beat up and burned out by this point. However, Paul and his gift as an apostle is not easily shaken or broken. Instead, in this moment, Paul stands up boldly in the midst of this scene and tells them that not only of his proud heritage, but of his experience on the road and how he has this Jesus story. So as he stands there and he shares it and he's in chains and the guards watching him as he shares this story, how do you think the people responded? Do you think Paul won over the audience? No, in fact, in Acts 24, 22, it says this. The people of God, God's people, respond to Paul's Jesus story like this. Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. It's a shocking statement. Unfortunately, and sadly, it's a statement that is not strange to people in the church today. There are times that we still, as God's people, miss the mark and judge people in this way. I've, held, I've heard self-proclaimed followers of Jesus make similar statements. We are gathered on Memorial Day weekend in which one branch of our military says, kill them all and let God sort them out. I've heard Christians repeat that. Look at God's people in this passage. Rid the earth of Paul. He's not fit to live. The Roman guard, who's an outsider to God's kingdom, shows more compassion than God's own people. The guard quickly asked Paul, when you told your story, did you say that you have a dual citizenship? Did you also say you're a Roman citizen? The soldier was listening to Paul's story and realizes that if given a chance, this crowd is going to take Paul out at any moment. 
And so the soldier quickly reminds Paul that he can appeal as a citizen to speak to the governor. It's important as a Roman soldier to know, uh, as a Roman citizen, to know that you have the right to appeal before the governor. And then if that doesn't work, you even had the right to appeal to the emperor Caesar himself. However, before he gets to the governor, Paul has this verbal spar with a Sanhedrin high priest which seals Paul's fate with the Jewish people. For lack of a better word, Paul pretty much tells him to shut his mouth and that he's nothing but a wall. From there, the dispute and the trouble is instantly passed on to the higher-ups. The writer of Acts, most uh, assumingly Luke, is an amazing storyteller. And as we read through this chapter over the next five weeks, you're going to learn that he tells a story, and we all know what's coming. There's a shipwreck coming. There's all this danger coming. But he just walks us up to the climax of the moment and never takes us over it. The writer of Acts also makes some obvious comparisons of Paul's journey to that of Jesus during the time of his trial and crucifixion. Like Jesus, Paul is turned on by his own people. And he's brought before a high priest. Then he's brought before the governor and then the leader of the empire. Each one of these steps of Paul's journey, if you would read this whole account, shows that Paul never succumbs to the circumstance in which he is bound to. The circumstance in which he seemingly is a sentenced prisoner to. Instead, he continues to contagiously and courageously share his story. At any time he gets And he even does it in the witness of the empire. At one point where Paul is before the governor Felix, Paul finds himself in a conversation with this guy who sits with Felix named Agrippa. And Agrippa is this kind of famous top Roman councilman. He's a statesman. He's a general. He's a well-known architect. His name still lives on today. And he he was a big deal. Some ways it was like dealing with the vice president. Paul has approached him even contagiously and courageously. Follow along in Acts 27, uh, 26, 28 to 29. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Because Paul is using his opportunity to speak about his testimony. And Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you who are listening to me today but may become what I am except for these chains. In other words, yes, Agrippa, I hope you encounter Jesus. I also hope all those that are watching me fight with you encounter Jesus. And I want them to be just like me except this whole chain part. So Paul even throws in uh, some humor there. That is where we pick up our story this morning in Acts 27, 1 through 12. You'll find it on the screen in front of you. You can also follow along in your Bible or in the Red Pew Bible in front of you. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, so Paul's in chains, he's being led to Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adam and set sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristocrus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day, we landed in Sidian. And Julius, the centurion, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so we might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to the sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. 
when we had sailed against the, across the open sea off the coast of Sicily and, and Paphlia, we landed in Myra and Lycia. And there, there was a centurion uh, found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and it put us on board. We had made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Sinus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite us alone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see our voyage is going to be a disastrous one and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. There was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. Paul has been put on to the ship. He is on his way to meet Caesar, to be judged for his wrongdoing by Caesar. And I want us to have a deep understanding of this passage, so let's quickly revisit a few aspects in which we've heard in this story. First, it says the weather had already become a nightmare for sailing because it was a day after atonement. The Day of Atonement is one of the largest, if not the largest, Jewish holiday that is celebrated. It is a Jewish holiday that is observed in uh, September. We often see it on our calendars as Yom Kippur. This is the storm season. As a Jew, you're definitely not comfortable being on the sea because you don't even like to be on the sea as a Jew. In this season, you stay away. Listen to how a Jewish teacher explains this tradition of Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement is the holiest day of the year. It is a day on which we are closest to God and the essentialness of our souls. It is the Day of Atonement. For on this day, and he's quoting Leviticus, He will forgive you to purify you that you may be cleansed from all your sins before God. For nearly 26 hours, from several minutes before sunset to after the nightfall, we willingly inflict our souls, meaning we will abstain from food, And from drink, we will not wash or anoint our bodies. We will not wear leather footwear. We will not even have marital relations. So by the time that Paul is arrested, he had already been beginning to celebrate this day. And we know this because if you go back to chapters 24 and 25, it says Paul took a 10-day fast. Not, Not a really fun opportunity. So Paul has already hit a moment of weakness, but we don't see it affect him at all. The second thing is that we see, though bound by his circumstance, Paul doesn't see defeat. He sees opportunity. Bound and shackled without his freedom, Paul is chained to some other prisoners who are also chained, just like Paul, probably on a chain. They were being led, like I said, like a dog by this big centurion named Julius. 
centurions were found both in the naval and the ground militaries of Rome. And they were, they were guys that had uh, been graduated to a level where they could govern at least 80 to 100 men. They were strong guys. They had proven their commitment to the empire. They had proven their loyalty, and they had shown it on the battlefield. They were also paid better than the rest of soldiers. The common soldier made 17 times less money than a centurion would. Researchers have said that they were known for their ability to govern a situation. Now, when I worked at Amtrak, I had a little badge, and that badge would allow me to uh, get on any train I wanted. And Tim, you would have enjoyed this. Is I would just flash this little pass, and they'd say, where are you going? And I'd say, New York, and they'd let me on. Roman centurion guards, because of their power, had flash passes. So when a boat comes into port, they don't need to wait for a military boat. They can just pretty much say, I'm Julius, and whatever trading ship is there will let them board. Imagine with me the scene as these bound prisoners were led on a chain leash in front of the peering public and people that wanted to kill Paul. They were drugged onto a ship that Paul says was of Asian origin and completely strange to him by soldiers that walked proud. In contrast, while these soldiers were probably walking proud and tall in their uniforms, the prisoners were following behind, chained and limping and barely able to stand because they were defeated, not only from their circumstance, but also from their fasting. The prisoners hid in the shadows of these guards. Their legs limped with every step, and they were most likely poked, provoked, and prodded both by the guards and the public while they walked down the dock. Secondly, what we see in this passage is Paul uses this opportunity to win favor in the eyes of man as he stays the mission and continues to courageously and contagiously share his Jesus story. Just as, G- uh, just as Paul did with Agrippa and Felix... Paul stays courageous. He stays bold. He continues to tell his story contagiously. And because as he begins to make port and city, and because he's been so contagious and courageous and has somehow formed social equity with this Julius guy, Julius lets Paul have his freedom while they're in port. Did you pick that up when we read the passage? It says, Julius, in his kindness, kindness, somehow Paul had built social equity. He had received favor with the guard, even as he was bound. So much so that the guard allows Paul to have his freedom so that Paul can go visit his church plants in that area and get his needs met. Luke writes in Acts that the centurion actually has kindness for Paul. Is that how we respond when we're bound to our circumstance? If we would have been drugged out of here today uh, in prison uh, chains and a, by a police officer and people were ready to kill us, would we have what it's left to kind of make uh, friends with those who are oppressing us? But that's exactly what we see Paul doing. Third, Paul is not swayed by his mission, by the disruption of his comfort, or by being placed in a culture that is not familiar to him. Paul is a Jew, and it's important to know that Jews don't sail. Paul is put into an oceanic sailing boat. It's important to know that, like 
uh, many people who enjoy the mountains more than the beach, Jews do not like the open sea. It is way beyond their comfort level. Think of what's beyond your comfort level in times of I-10, and that was the average mindset of a Jewish person about the ocean. Listen to how N.T. Wright explains this reality. But for the Jews, the sea was a monster. The Jews weren't tanning on the sand, visiting the boardwalk. They weren't throwing Thrasher's french fries to the seagulls that were circling around in the air. They weren't swimming in the ocean. They had left this up to their neighboring pagan cultures. They didn't like the sea. They had equated it with a devil or to be a devilish place. It was way beyond their level of comfort. In Revelation, we learn that John says, there will be no ocean in heaven. The Psalms continually speak of monster-like creatures that live in the sea and will be or have been tamed by the power of God. In the sea... We know that there's a Jew-eating beast who took Jonah and swallowed him in his defiance. In Jewish culture, it was believed the ocean was a place of great evil. And it was never their culture or their comfort to willingly go out in it. Yes, Jewish people would fish in lakes and streams and rivers and the shallow parts of the sea where they could reach. But they didn't go out into the open sea willingly. They weren't spending their Memorial Day weekend at the open sea. To them, in addition to the evil, the open sea was a place to villains. People we might call pirates. Storms. You would get scurvy out there. Plus, technology wasn't built well. There weren't greatly designed ships. And so they weren't able to sail the sea well. It's important to know that even though that was common of the Jewish culture, Paul is a little different because when he's bragging to his church in Corinth about all he's been through for the kingdom of God, he says this, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. These are great bragging rights, right? Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a whole night and day in the open sea. He's bragging about that because they're all like, Paul, you were on the open sea? I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, in danger at the sea, and in danger from false believers. It's important to mention that we don't often have a good idea what it means with the open sea in the Mediterranean. I think a lot of times when we hear the Mediterranean Sea, we tend to picture a really big lake or maybe even the Chesapeake Bay. This is the Mediterranean Sea. It spans multiple continents. It spans multiple uh, countries. And it's much more than just a really big lake. It's a serious ocean. It's almost completely landlocked ocean, which makes it unique. Though it is connected to the Black Sea and to the Atlantic Ocean only by nine miles of openness. The Mediterranean Sea is no Chesapeake Bay. In fact, if we were to overlay it over America... It would take up most of our country. It's not the ocean uh, that we tend to picture of. We tend to picture something much smaller. So when Paul says the winds are blowing us out to open sea, he's talking about a little bit of a fear factor for him. The Mediterranean Sea covers 965,000 square miles. On average, it is 4,921 feet deep. It really is a monster. The Mediterranean Sea is also home to 47 different species of sharks, at least 15 of which are man-eaters. And the area can be 
uh, can get bad windstorms. In fact, they have their own name for them. They call them, uh, they, they've put Mediterranean and hurricane together to make their own word to describe these uh, typhoon-like storms that they get. Listen to how much a ship was struggling in this passage. From there, we put out to the sea again, but we had to pass to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed, uh, when we had sailed across the open sea, passing to the lee of Cyprus means that the winds had changed direction. Instead of blowing them towards shore, it was blowing them out into the deep part. Because ships weren't able to kind of trespass uh, and sail well, they stayed to the ports and they stopped in almost every port. They weren't doing this uh, way out where you can't see land thing. And so Paul quickly says, the winds were coming off the land and blowing us out into the open sea. And then he goes on, we had to make slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving because when the wind did not allow us to hold our course. It's no small body of water, and it cannot easily be sailed. There's no wonder Jews didn't sail. Lastly, in a disastrous storm of life, but dependent on God, Paul knew the full weight of his situation and was able to name it. He even used his equity to still speak life. What speaks louder to those around you? The circumstance in which you feel bound to? Those things that you feel like sentenced prisoners to? Or your dependency on God? I love when Paul quotes uh, this quote of Paul as he addresses the ship leadership. He says, men, I can see our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our lives as well. But the guard, instead of listening to what Paul had to say, listens to the advice and the owner of the ship. And since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided against Paul that they should sail on. Paul can see it coming with a practiced sailor's eye and prophetic insight coming together. And those in charge take no notice. As we come to a close, let's remind ourselves of Paul's dependence on God. Despite the circumstance he was bound to and shackled to, I invite you to think for a minute, what circumstance in your life do you feel bound to? What circumstance do you feel that you are a prisoner to? Name it. And in mirroring Paul, I offer these statements. Though bound by my circumstance, I won't see defeat. I will see opportunity. I see this this thing I'm bound to as an opportunity to win favor in the eyes of a man and stay the mission to contagiously and courageously share my Jesus story. I won't be swayed from my mission by the disruption of my comfort or by being placed in a culture not familiar to me. And in a disastrous storm of life, I will stay dependent on God even when I know the full weight of my situation and I am able to name it. I will use my equity and my voice to still speak life to those around me. Let me share this anonymous and well-used quote with you. Ships don't sink because of the water around them. They sink because of the water that gets in them. Don't let what's happening around you get inside you and weigh you down. There's freedom in Christ. Stay tuned next week, and Matt, I invite you to to come and lead us in a time of worship as we close. But our series, Shipwreck, will continue to follow Paul's seafaring journey as a sentenced prisoner in chains.
Paul's journey teaches us to faithfully depend on God and stay the mission, even in moments where we feel bound by our circumstance.